everybody, and welcome to another very special Almost Spring episode of Ignite Radio Live. Over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio, you are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter, and we are blessed to be together tonight, and we have a special treat in store for you. Tonight we have a very special program for you, as my wife just indicated. We are going to hear Scott Hahn, the Scott Hahn, share his thoughts behind his brand new book, co-authored with Brandon McGinley, called It Is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends Upon True Religion. Just some questions that they seek to answer. Is religion a right given to us by the state? Is it an opium for the masses, as Karl Marx once invoked? Is it a private opinion with no role in the public sphere? This follows a particularly tumultuous political season where many have been left with the question, what is the intersection of politics and faith? We often hear people say, you know, keep church and state separate. And uh, what do we mean by that? Are we called as Catholics to be engaged in the activities of this world? And how do we understand that? With all these competing ideas of what makes a just society, you know, what do you think about socialism or communism, all the other isms, all those other forms that have been tried throughout the history of humanity? How do we understand from a faithful Catholic perspective God's design for a rightly ordered society that is for the good of all people? I'm very blessed that our good friend Eric Sammons, the new editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine, is allowing us to rebroadcast Crisis Point. And so I do encourage you to check out Crisis Point. He interviews a range of wonderful experts who are really on point in answering some of today's most pressing questions. So we are deeply grateful to you, Eric, and to your team, and to all who are involved with this, shall we say, a revival of Crisis Magazine. So please prayerfully support them. And with no further ado, we are now going to get on to the program. Well, I think I'm just going to start off and ask the standard question of why did you write the book? Well, in a certain sense, it is a unique book. Uh, Brandon McGinley and I have struck up a friendship over the last three or four years. He's a former student of Robbie George at Princeton. We both have great appreciation for our mutual friend and we've learned a lot from him. But I would say we are taking a different direction than what you find in Robbie's work. Uh, and so what I'm adding is sort of the biblical dimension. What Brandon is adding is more of the philosophical or the political dimension. I was, as an undergraduate, a triple major at Grove City College in theology, but also philosophy and economics. And my first publication was an economics, was an article in an economics journal. Uh, and we were, my wife and I were libertarians at that point. So the first area of conversion for me, even before discovering the Holy Eucharist, was the social doctrine of the church, reading a rerum novarum quadragesimo anno and that sort of thing, and seeing such a family-centered approach to the economy, it lined up perfectly with what I was discovering in scripture with the notion of covenant as extended family, applying to the land, the promised land, and so much more. So when Brandon, who lives in Pittsburgh about 45 minutes from here, when we began getting together to do different projects, our, our discussions would range far and wide. And it became pretty apparent after, uh, especially after my book, The First Society, The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order came out, that we could do something of a duet. And uh, he's much younger than me. He's roughly my oldest son, Michael's age, you know, about 40 years old or so. Uh, but I enjoy those kinds of conversations, especially when they go for hours and they produce ideas that become manuscripts and then finally books. And 
we're working on a couple of things I don't want to divulge what they have to do with, but it's a kind of sequel to It Is Right and Just. And so I had this idea also because it's sort of the subtext behind much of my work. Um, you go back to Rome's Sweet Home, and that's just simply our narrative, our story. But A Father Who Keeps His Promises was my, was my next book, and basically tracing the notion of covenants from the beginning all the way through Noah and his family, Abraham and his tribe, the 12 tribes of Israel under Moses becoming a national family, to the Catholic Church being the international family that God is fathering. Well, there are clearly social implications to that. It isn't just the sacraments. And in fact, the next book I did, or one of the, the next books, The Lamb's Supper and then Swear to God, I began to work through the connections between the notion of covenant as distinct from contract and the notion of oath, which is in Latin sacramentum. And you know my work well enough to recognize that there are also profound social implications if you want to celebrate the sacraments safely. I mean, in terms of eschatological safety, this is what the early church was all about. This is what the medievals especially were about. You know, someday you might want to interview a a relatively unknown professor who's a colleague of Michael's at uh, Mount St. Mary's Seminary, Owen Phelan, because he looks at how baptism makes radical demands upon our lives, which the medievals, the, the Merovingians, the Carolingians began to take more and more seriously. And you back yourself into creating a Christian civilization, not because you have these political blueprints for a utopia, but because you receive the sacraments and want to do it in a fruitful way that will lead you to heaven. And uh, I, I'm fond of this approach where you're not just trying to create a theocracy, you're just faithfully receiving the gift of a Christocracy. That is, Christ the King is coming to us in every Mass, as I describe in the Lamb's Supper. But all seven sacraments bind us to God and bind us to each other, and the sacraments are not reducible to rituals that we do for God so much as what God does for us to make up for what we lack, to give us all that we need, to bind us to the body of Christ. And, you know, this, I'm convinced, is why Pope Benedict refers to the, the Cluniac Reform, the Benedictine monks, who for several centuries just began to expand, as you know, and form all kinds of monasteries, well over a thousand, that end up flourishing so much they produce what we would call, you know, medieval Christendom. And Pope Benedict points out in his famous address to the French Academy, the academics, that uh, the last thing in the world they were seeking to do was to renew culture or form a new one. They just wanted to, to live the Eucharist in a radical way and make worship the center of their life and then wrap work around worship, consecrate our labor through the liturgy. And that I include that in the book. And uh, so... You and I talked about Hope to Die, you know, last year when it came out in the aftermath of the pandemic, you know, and I couldn't help but notice a sense of divine timing that you have a book called Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body coming out right when COVID is coming out. And then this book comes out just days after the single most controversial presidential election that I hope we'll ever see in our lifetime. And so a lot of Catholics are scrambling to figure out, okay, what do we do now, you know? How do we respond? How do we avoid reacting, which usually ends up empowering your opponents uh, if you do so in such a vociferous way? So, I mean, that's the backstory. It, it plugs into a whole lot of my works, and yet it also stands out as somewhat unique because we are addressing 
the notion of civilization, how to rebuild, and why religion is so central. And we can take it from here, but uh, you know, it, it's one of a kind as far as my 40 or 50 books, but it's also directly related to all of them as well in different ways. You are listening to a very special Ignite Radio Live. We are rebroadcasting moments from the podcast Crisis Point and Outreach of Crisis magazine. Listening to Scott Hahn speak about his new book, co-authored with Brandon McGinley, It Is Right and Just. Join us in engaging your families on the journey at ilovemyfamily.us. It's clear we don't have a unified front. I mean, that's obvious. What would you say is probably the most common error among Catholics when it comes to viewing the relationship of the state, of, of civilization, of, of the church in all of these areas? Like what, 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 what are we getting wrong fundamentally? Yeah, I think that American Catholics have become more American than Catholic, both on the right and the left. And so I reference uh, this famous play that occurred in the NFL back in 1964 with uh, the Minnesota Viking defensive and Jim Marshall, uh, who holds all kinds of NFL records for the most consecutive games played, most fumbles recovered, and he's never made it into the Hall of Fame, mostly because of one play that happened in October of 64 when they were playing the 49ers. He picked up one of the 30 fumbles that he recovered, but this one was from the running back Billy Kilmer, and he ran it to he ran it back to the end zone. And then to celebrate, he tossed the ball in the air. And then all of his teammates surrounded him to confront him with the fact that he ran the wrong way. He ran and ended up giving the 49ers a safety, two points. Now, fortunately, they won the game 27 to 22, but it would have been 27 to 20 if it weren't for the famous wrong way run. And it's noticeable. I mean, obviously, he was, he was disappointed, but he wasn't out to betray his teammates. You know, and, and it reminds us that we always tend to act on the basis of what we think is right. And so if what we think is right turns out to be wrong, we will have scored points for the opponents. And in the football field of life, I think we often find ourselves doing what we sincerely believe is right as Americans, but without recognizing the degree to which we are complicit in something that started way back even before America and that can be called secularism. It can, can be called classical liberalism. But it's basically this thing where we all agree on privatizing religion. And so we, we agree when it comes to the public square that religion is largely irrelevant to the social discourse. In fact, religion is downright dangerous if you bring it up and refer to yours explicitly. Um, and I understand why, but at the same time, I also, uh, Brandon and I compare this also to uh, what happened back in uh, 1974 in Sweden when these two robbers robbed a bank and they took four hostages and held them for five days. And finally, with the tear gas, they got them out. And during the trial, everyone was sort of shocked when these four witnesses spoke out in defense of their two captors. As former hostages, you know, they were treated rough. You should have let them get away. You should have given that jet flight. And this is how Stockholm syndrome entered the English vocabulary, because you realize that sometimes you internalize the values of your captors during captivity as a coping mechanism, you know, and it tends to take, it tends to stick. And so later on, when you're confronted, 
there's almost a sense in which you rationalize that complicity. And I think a lot of Catholics in America would pass a polygraph because they sincerely believe that they're running the right way. And they are unaware of the fact uh, how much they're contributing to the deepening of the secularization of our society. So we don't confront that directly for the most part. What we try to do is sort of what the early church did, and that is just look at Jesus Christ, crucified, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. No matter who is occupying the White House, we don't elect him. He is enthroned by the Father, and his parting words to the disciples are not only spiritually profound, but they're also socially relevant. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's how the Great Commission begins, as you know, in Matthew 28, verse 18. He doesn't say, all authority in heaven and earth will be given to me at the end of time when I come back and clean up the mess that y'all <laughs> have made. So what? Okay, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. And the next say, the next statement is, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And once again, you've got to pause and say, wait, he meant to say, go and make disciples within all the nations, but that's not, in fact, what he says. He says, make disciples of all nations. And the term disciple is rather straightforward in the Greek. Mothetes means a disciplined student, like the 12 disciples, but make them of the nations. Now, he's not talking about gigantic secular nation states. The Greek word is ethne. So he's talking about communities. And so make disciples of all communities. And, you know, he goes on to say the next words out of his mouth are baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And once again, the sacraments play the primary role in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So it's not about rhetorical arguments. It's not about, you know, being witty, wise, and winsome in order to convert these people. It's trusting that the Father has enthroned the Son to send the Spirit to do the otherwise unthinkable, to do what would be humanly impossible, to make disciples of all nations because of the power of God's Spirit that is released in baptism. And then Jesus adds, teaching them to observe whatsoever have I command, whatsoever I have commanded you. And, and so he's not just saying, you know, find the common core of public morality and agree on this standard of decency, you know, the low-hanging fruit that the Democrats and the Republicans that agree on in terms of the common good or solidarity or subsidiarity. You know, it's basically teach them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you, for lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Those represent our marching orders. You know, there is not a negotiation back and forth between the disciples and the Lord of Lords. They simply have to comply or else they're defiant in this, or else they're disobedient. And so if you take our Lord at his word, it's pretty straightforward. Now, we would probably advise him to do it differently by going to Rome, finding 12 senators who are the most popular, articulate, well-educated, and, you know, make them fishers of men. But no, he goes to the backwaters of Palestine, chooses tax collectors and fishermen. I mean, it's the unlikeliest formula for success, precisely for the purpose of showing not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And so Psalm 115 resounds in our book that it isn't about the success of our committees, of our political programs, our platforms, our parties. It really is about just simply loving our land enough to give to America what we know is the most valuable gift, 
and that is the Catholic faith, lived out radically, lived out fully, freely, and then shared with all of these people who are surrounding us. And so that that is, you know, there's a there's a way in which you could say in tennis, it's always your forehand that's the strong, you know, and then your backhand better be strong enough to, you know, to also win. Uh, the, the backhand is to address the political contradictions that you find in secularism, the idolatrous consequences of secularism. But the forehand, our strong suit in this book, again, is just to tease out the social implications of what discipleship means and why it is, you know, we breathe in the, the breath of God's spirit, we ingest the word, but we exhale the breath of God's spirit, and we share the gospel with every man, woman, and child, because there is nobody on earth, Jesus doesn't point to and say, I purchased you with my blood. There isn't a single square inch of the planet Jesus doesn't point to and say, mine, right, Father, that's mine. And so if we're going to live the faith in a faithful way, uh, we, we, we've got to stay involved in local politics as well as state politics and national politics. But above all, we've got to recognize that the new covenant gives us a sacramental polity that will end up being more than getting the White House back. You know, we've got to stay involved. We, you know, I, I, tell, I tell the readers that we've got to plant next fall's crops so that we have something to eat during the winter. But we've also got to be willing to plant forests that we know we will probably never live long enough to see, but our grandkids will have the wood to build their houses for their fireplaces and for their furniture. And so we've got to think as Catholics and not just as Americans, because it's more than political cycles, election cycles. We've got to think in terms of generations, the extended family, our kids, our great, our, our, our grandkids, our great grandkids, but also our godchildren. And if we think more as Catholics than simply as American conservatives, neocons, or whatever else, I think we're going to end up bequeathing to our country something so much more than voting right or you know, getting my wife to run for councilwoman at large for the city of Steubenville. I'm so grateful and proud of her for her second term. She's won two landslides, and we really do believe in local political involvement and action. But I, I do believe that when she, you know, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, they say, well, I mean, I can see her not just as the mayor someday, but as she's already the matriarch of our of our town. And I, I believe that when we live out the sacraments, we unleash far more than when we enter the voting booth and vote for the right people. Right. Uh, and so all of this to say that this is part of the new evangelization. This is what it means to strive for holiness, to become saints and nothing less. Because once you see that holiness is contagious, if it's authentic, then you realize how illogical it is for us to kind of withhold obedience to make disciples of all nations, you know, because if it is holiness, I can't want that for myself, but not my wife. I mean, she's her own person. I, I want it for her as well as me, but I can't want it for her, but not our kids. Well, of course I want it for our six kids, but, but not the neighbors. Well, you have to want it for them as well, but not the whole town of Steubenville. Well, yes, the whole town, but not the state of Ohio. No. Okay. The state as well but not the other 49. I mean, where do you start drawing the lines and, you know, building the walls? I would say all 49 states besides Ohio, all countries besides the United States, you know, and this is what we're doing. And not just through the social ethics, 
and the political theology and the good sound Thomistic philosophy and the traditional liturgy, all of these things contribute. But ultimately, all of these things exist for one purpose, to make us holy, to make us saints. But uh, the fact is, we never cease to strive for that and nothing less than that. You are listening to a very special Ignite Radio Live. We are rebroadcasting moments from the podcast Crisis Point and Outreach of Crisis magazine. Listening to Scott Hahn speak about his new book, co-authored with Brandon McGinley, It Is Right and Just. Join us in engaging your families on the journey at ilovemyfamily.us. It doesn't matter what system we're under. You know, we're on a democratic republic here in America. Other countries might be different. But does it really matter? Is there systems that are better to help people grow in holiness and and to be better Catholics? Right. Okay. So I should address this at two levels. The theoretical level in terms of natural philosophy, political philosophy. So we can go to Plato, the Republic. We can look at Aristotle as well. And especially Augustine, City of God, all the way to I'm thinking of Aquinas on kingship that used to be regarded as spurious, but now everyone acknowledges it's authentic, this letter that Aquinas wrote on kingship. And, you know, I find I'm closest to Aquinas's theory or theology that a mixed order is best, that you have a monarchy, but you have a king and a queen. You have uh, an aristocracy because you have these people who have uh, grown in virtue and are capable of leading. You also have a democratic element or a Republican element with representative government. But what you really have, as Eric von Kuhnout-Ladin pointed out to me many years ago when I was still at Grove City, what you have is an extended family. I mean, that can be oversimplified or reductionist. But when you look at an extended family, you've got a patriarch and a matriarch. You've got, you know, our kids who have grown up and now have kids. Their kids are some, some infants, but also some adolescents or virtually and so to the extent that you have people growing up in virtue, you have the blueprint for the theoretical grid or sound government. Uh, of course, we know concretely, though, moving away from the theoretical to the practical, that some of the greatest enemies of the Catholic Church have been Catholic monarchs. Okay, so we have St. Louis, you know, my favorite uh, in France back in the 12th and 13th centuries. And, you know, with Father Walsh, I would say yes. The 13th century is the greatest of all centuries, and yet, at the same time, it was not utopian, and it was something that had been not planned by any political party. It was really the fruit that emerges from the Cluniac and the Cistercians and other sources or fountainheads of spiritual dynamism. Um, And so I would say the most important thing that we can learn is not the theoretical ideal that we find for example, in the Davidic kingdom or in the Catholic church, which is now Catholic because the king and the queen are both in heaven. Uh, And all of the saints who are in glory don't form a different denomination. They're the primary members of what we call the Catholic church because it's universal. That's the meaning of Catholic. And so we are true members of the church, but there's a sense in which our membership is probationary, provisional, depending on if we are in a state of grace when we die. Virtues are the in some ways, the, the single most misunderstood notions when it comes to Catholic morality. We tend to think in terms of an obediential ethic, that we've got the commandments, either we obey or we don't obey. But in fact, beyond that, we have the virtues. And of course, we know the four cardinal virtues in terms of two, 
prudence and temperance and fortitude and justice. But under those four cardinal virtues, Aquinas lists dozens of others as well in terms of honesty, magnanimity, humility. We won't, but the highest, the chief moral virtue, when we look at the four cardinal virtues, is justice. And everybody's talking about justice. But I don't think that word means what people think it means to parrot my favorite movie, Princess Bride. <laughs> I think justice is, is a reductionism that we start at the lowest level of what we can call commutative justice or transactional, commercial justice. You know, when we check out of the grocery store, we pay for the groceries. Well, that's the lowest level. You know, and then everybody talks about social justice or what is normally called distributive justice, which is equity and fairness, especially for the infants or the indigent, the aging and all of that. But traffic laws as well as tax and this sort of thing. Okay, that's even more important than transactional justice. But it stops there. But actually, it doesn't. It doesn't even start there. You know, the idea of the virtue of justice, and, and, and remember that virtues are to the soul what muscles are to the body. They not only make us strong and virtuous, they also make it easier for us to do more and more good for more and more people without more and more effort. It just becomes habituated. So what is the highest form of justice? Well, Aquinas is very straightforward, but he's drawing not only from Augustine, he's drawing from pagan sources like Cicero, especially in De Afficis, where, where Cicero says, look, there are forms of justice. You know, justice is giving to others what you owe them, but you can't pay your parents back. So you honor them. You show piety towards them because you can't give them life and love and food, clothing and shelter and nurture like they gave you. So you honor them in a unique way. Likewise, the rulers, you can't give them back the common good that they supplied for you. So patriotism is an extension of that piety that you owe to your parents. But the highest form of justice is religio. According to Aquinas, yeah, but according to Cicero, because we owe God more than we owe our parents and our rulers. And so what do we give to God? Well, it's a transcendent expression of justice, but we offer him sacrifice. So when we call the book, It is Right and Just, we're not just lifting a line from the liturgy. We're referencing the fact that the highest form of justice is to give him thanks and praise. It is our duty as well as our salvation, not for his sake and for his ego. It's for our sake. We add nothing to God when we offer sacrificial worship, but he opens us up to add everything more to us that we need. And so it is right and just to give him thanks and praise, as Paul points out in Romans 1, but claiming to be wise, they become fools and idolaters because they don't give him thanks or praise. But it's not just wrong. It's unjust. It's not just unjust. It's a cosmic injustice. It's not venial, but moral. And why? Because the virtues are not just private virtues for individuals. They're public virtues for neighborhoods, for cultures, for societies. And the church has always been pretty clear on this. As you probably know, the catechism states in paragraph 2105, one of my favorite teachings, the duty of offering God genuine worship concerns man both individually and socially. This is the traditional Catholic teaching on the moral duty of individuals and societies toward the true religion. And it's talking about religion here in the context as a virtue of the natural law, not just the law of Christ, not just supernatural revelation. And it goes on. It says, and the one church of Christ. 
By constantly evangelizing men, the church works toward enabling them to infuse the Christian spirit into the mentality and mores, laws, and structures of the communities in which they live. The social duty of Christians is to respect and awaken in each person the love of the true and the good. It requires them to make known the worship of the one true religion which subsists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church. And it goes on to speak of the social kingship of Christ, not that we elect him, but that God has enthroned him. And, you know, even Paul, when he's writing to the Romans in chapter 13, when Nero was the Caesar, reminds the Roman Catholics, the Christians there, in verse 4, twice he refers to the rulers as being God's servants. And the word that he uses is diakonos. It's a liturgical term. It's liturgia in the secular order that they provide, which is like, you know, the public works. And so when we see that, we're like, wait a second, that isn't the way Americans think when it comes to religion or virtue, much less justice. But in a certain way, the greatest form of justice is religion for persons and for societies privately and publicly. It has to begin on the interior with the heart, or Augustine says it will just lead to idolatry and self-worship. But if we mean it, we want a Christ to be enthroned in our hearts and our homes then we're not going to build a wall and say, but not our neighborhoods or not our, not our cities, not our states. And so before we even figure out, okay, what can we do with the level of virtue that we find in our country today? We've just got to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want us to do as a family, as members of this parish, as citizens in this city, this state, this country, and leave the rest to him. I mean, if we were to act, you know, if we were to ask the experts in actuarial studies, you know, what is the probability of us producing a Catholic country here in the next generation? I mean, the answer is zilch, it's nil. But that's not really the right question. You know, what Christ wants to do with our obedience is up to him. What we've got to do in trusting him and obeying him, that's what's up to us. You know, and so in the charge of the light brigade, I think it's Tennyson who says, ours is not the reason why, ours is but to do or die or words to that effect. And I think every faithful disciple must humbly admit, who knows what kind of forest we can plant, who knows whether it will last into the next generation. But, you know, it's one of those things where we want to be obedient so that even like St. Louis de Montfort, who builds the statue in the day it's dedicated, it's torn down by the, the, uh, the so-called Catholic king, who's already kind of declared a war against the Catholic Church. So, the theoretical ideal is worth studying. In fact, it's an important part of the education of the next generation. Getting familiar with Plato and Aristotle, as well as Cicero, Seneca, especially Augustine and Aquinas, because all of them, especially Aquinas and Augustine, are the ones who show us how much the supernatural revelation of grace builds upon the natural truth of reason and the natural order, the natural law, and the natural family. And so, you know, like uh, it's like digging a tunnel from both sides or from below, but from on high as well. But I don't think that Christ is saying, wait, only when you're done complying with the natural law, utilizing natural reason to come up with natural theology and all, that's when I'll pour out the graces. No, grace is meant to heal nature. And not until we recognize that, I think we're going to tend to overly privilege natural law, natural reason. And I think we're going to end up discovering only too late that if we had been humble children asking for ourselves and our loved ones for the supernatural medicine of divine mercy, 
then he would not only heal us and get us home to heaven, but it also heal our land, you know. And when Solomon dedicates the Jerusalem temple, you know, he was the king. He wasn't the high priest, but he was showing us how the secular should be ordered to the sacred, how the natural things that we do on earth ought to be ordered to the supernatural mysteries that come down from heaven. You know, and one of my favorite passages in all of scripture is his prayer of consecration, where he assures the people of God, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, but I'll also heal their land. God wanted to do that more than Solomon wanted Israel to do that. And so we, we should build for God the things that pertain to worship so as to fulfill the highest form of justice. But at the end of the day, we're going to leave it to God as to what he's going to do with all of our best efforts. Okay, I think your your natural optimism is conflicting with my natural pessimism. <laughs> <laughs> Kimberly would be laughing hysterically to hear you describe me as naturally optimistic. Okay. I am naturally hyper. I'm, the supernatural grace that I'm talking about yeah. is God's therapy and the only source of joy I know. Yeah. And well, my okay. kids would vouch for her. Okay, that's good to know. Um, that's good to know because my kids would say the same thing about me. You are listening to a very special Ignite Radio Live. We are rebroadcasting moments from the podcast Crisis Point and Outreach of Crisis magazine. Listening to Scott Hahn speak about his new book, co-authored with Brandon McGinley, It Is Right and Just. Join us in engaging your families on the journey at ilovemyfamily.us. I think there's this problem of like trying to reconcile the idea of a state that's working in union in some sense with the church. And what we see now, which is a state that is obviously antithetically opposed to e- not just the church, but just natural law. And so That's hate speech for many of our leaders. Right, exactly. Right. Saying even things like transgenderism is a mental illness is hate speech, even though it's, a, right. it's factually accurate. And so I guess what I'm trying to get at is, are you saying we kind of, I'm saying, okay, if we just go to a natural law, that's a great step. That that would work out a lot of way, great ways. It sounds like you're leapfrogging that. You're just saying, you know, okay, yeah, that's nice. But what I'm saying, no, we go for the gold, and yeah, maybe we'll, we'll get, Lord willing, we can get the other, you know, the natural and other stuff along the way. Is that kind of the gist of what you're saying as far as the role of the state? Like, go for even beyond just enforcing the natural law to even beyond that. You know, this won't sound like an answer to your question, but I think you'll see that it is. You know, uh, in Romans 1, we have the basis for natural theology, you know, where Paul makes it clear that ever since the creation of the world is invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, been clearly perceiving the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. So the original sin for a society is to not give him thanks and praise out of pride. But what happens? Claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. So what does God do? Well, Paul has already introduced the idea that the wrath of God is unveiled, apocalypsed. It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. So what form does the wrath take? Is it earthquakes, pestilence, famine, sword? No, God gave them up in verse 24. God gave them up 
again in verse 26, and God gave them up in verse 28. So when God lets people have what they want instead of what they need, or instead of what God wants for them, they basically end up hardening their hearts. When God lets societies have what they want instead of what they need. You see three stages in Romans that corresponds not only to the history of Israel, but America and every nation in between ancient Israel and our own. What is it? First, it's infidelity. Second, it's impurity and immorality. And third, it's idolatry. And by the time you're done, the last verse of the chapter, Paul states, though they know God's, they don't only, they not only know that God exists, they know his attributes, they know the natural moral law, but there's a defiant intransigence, a declaration of war on this. They know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but approve those who practice them. And Paul could have added, and disapprove those who don't practice, but condemn them. And so, you know, Paul is identifying the predicament of Rome, because he's writing the Romans, but of America as well. And so in chapter two, he begins in a way that's sort of like unexpected. He, he zigs when you think he's going to zag. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, whoever you are, when you judge another, for in passing judgment upon him, you condemn yourself because you also fall short. And so I think his point is going to be made explicitly clear that we're going to be saved not by law, but by gospel, not by works, but by grace. You know, and so it is not the it is not the case that the new evangelization will succeed by our natural efforts restoring natural theology, natural law, and the natural order, and then comes the icing, dessert. You know, we're going to have the supernatural. No, the whole point of the medicine of God's mercy and grace is that we can't even keep the natural law apart from supernatural grace, but we're too proud to admit it. And not just American Catholics who vote the wrong way, but American Catholics who wrote the right way, but justify themselves by pointing to the natural law and then pointing to the guy who happens to occupy the White House and say, you know, see how good we are compared to him. That's what Paul is getting at. Don't think that you can justify yourself by pointing comparatively to how much better you are than all of those bad people out in the world and even those who are in the synagogue or in the church with you. No, the, the point is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and so we need Christ, and apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. He didn't say, apart from me, you could do nothing except the really, you know, you, you, you can do nothing supernatural. No, the supernatural grace is meant to heal nature of the effects of sin, perfect nature, so that we can naturally reason more reasonably in the light of faith than we can without it, but also to elevate nature so that we're not just creating good citizens, but we're launching future saints. And that is plan, that is not plan B. You know, that is plan A. From the beginning, it was always about the coming of Christ and the making of saints, and not just the natural order, the natural law, natural society, and natural law for marriage. I mean, I think that we have got to stand by and be willing to die for the natural moral law. But I would greatly prefer to die for the supernatural law of Christ in the gospel. And I would think that once America discovers, especially American Catholics, recognize that we need Christ every bit as much as they need Christ. We are not out to reach them, the other liberal Americans who are secularized. We are them much more than we realize. And if we allow Christ to reach us, he can use us to reach them 
and will be sure to tell them, we are you, we're with you. And at the same time, you know, the reason why I'm not an optimist is also the same reason why I'm so filled with supernatural hope. Because what we want is not just hard. I mean, hope always has for its object a difficult future good. I mean, it's a good or we wouldn't want it. It's in the future. It wouldn't be something we're hoping for, but it's difficult. That's true for everything, winning the lottery, you know, or winning the marathon. But what we want is heaven. And without holiness, no one will see God. So the object of our hope is not just difficult. It's humanly impossible. And so if we recognize that, I think we're going to be childlike in our approach. And again, I'm an academic. I'm an intellectual. I get the fact that, boy, I am so Thomistic. I love natural theology, the five ways. I love the natural moral law as he treats it in the Prima Secundae and all of the rest. But I think Aquinas would be the first witness, you know, to say, seek grace and grace will heal and perfect nature. If you seek the the natural first, you're like the Judaizers who want to be justified by law through their own works and see their achievement as a, a wage or a salary when in fact we're children, this is an inheritance the Father sent the oldest, the eternal Son, to give us. And so if we, if we approach not only our Lord, but our country, men and women, with this attitude, I think we'll be shocked to discover how much more God wants to transform our land than we want Him to, and how much more capable He is than we think He is, and how, how much more we should have been praying for that kind of not sanitizing the temporal order, but as Vatican II puts it, sanctifying the temporal order. You are listening to a very special Ignite Radio Live. We are rebroadcasting moments from the podcast Crisis Point and Outreach of Crisis magazine. Listening to Scott Hahn speak about his new book, co-authored with Brandon McGinley, It Is Right and Just. Join us in engaging your families on the journey at ilovemyfamily.us. What can we do? I mean, it, we start to feel a little helpless, I think. I think a lot of Catholics feel helpless. Like, okay, I know the answer. I know what the real answer is. The answer is prayer, fasting, and I don't want to dismiss sacraments, penance. I don't want to dismiss those. Those are obviously the first answer and the, and are, in one sense, the only answer. But then what are some practical ways to then put that in effect based upon kind of the, the principles of your book and, and, and the principles of, of Catholic uh, social teaching? Right. Well, you're correct in emphasizing what Kimberly has done. You know, we dropped our son off at Gregory the Great Academy uh, as a sophomore, and we thought we were going to homeschool him through senior year like we'd done all the other five. And when we're driving back, Kimberly asked me, what are we going to do now that we're empty nesters three years before we were expecting? I said, pray about running for politics. And she looked at me, you know, it's like Balaam's ass talking. I mean, (laughs) the last thing out of my mouth would be think about politics, but I had been praying about it too. And she prayed about it 24 hours later after a holy hour, she came back convinced that she should. And she knocked on over 7,000 doors and there are only 7,000 plus doors in Steubenville to knock on. <laughs> she was told, just knock on the Republican. Well, there are hardly any Republican doors. She knocked, And for months and months, and I went with her and others did too. And she did it and she'd come back. I was exhausted. She was energized. She was meeting people, building bridges, you know, black, white, inner city, outlying area and everything else. And she did that round two for her second term as well. And I went with her once or twice. But I mean, nobody, I mean, she just loved it. And that's her personality. That's her skill set. That's her virtue. And so she's been able to do a lot, but not nearly as much as she thought, which was twice as much as I thought she could accomplish. And so, I mean, it's been frustrating. 
And so it's good that she's also doing a podcast for the St. Paul Center. It's getting tens of thousands. She's doing a regular weekly radio show with EWTN. She'd never done that before. She's also pouring herself into all 20 grandkids doing a different journal each day, you know, writing down prayers for them. I mean, she's one in a million, maybe one in a billion. Uh, but I would also put alongside of her a close friend of mine, Bobby John. He was the Presbyterian pastor here in town for years, and he would come over and we would talk and, you know, he'd ask questions about the Bible. He was a Calvinist. And, 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 and so after a year or two, you know, we had some exciting two, three hour conversations. And he asked me if I would be a sponsor when he came into the church, you know, but his youth ministry was flourishing like nobody else's. In fact, more than everybody else's combined. And so when he became a Catholic, we thought, well, that's the end of it all. No, he's created the Ohio Valley Youth Network. He works with us through the St. Paul Center, but it's boots on the ground. He's working with Protestants and Catholics and nuns and agnostics. He's, he's, he's teaching in the local public school and others too. Bible studies, I think he was doing about a dozen a week. And for a while, he was thinking of running for mayor. I'm kind of relieved that he's not now just to keep up all of the kingdom work. But he has built more bridges in our community, apart from politics, than any 10 politicians could have done, including my bride. And so I really think, and I was just with somebody down in Naples, Florida, uh, Michael and his wife, Marissa, and they're in, they're doing youth work in like eight or 10 different churches, some Protestant, some Catholic, public schools, Catholic schools. And I mean, when I was done listening to him, I was more exhausted than he was, but I was also energized because I just don't think we pray enough, or I don't think there's an obedient response of trust. You know, uh, if you were not afraid of failure, what would you attempt to do for Christ and his church? That's the question I feel like our Lord puts to me, because my fear of failure is the thing that leads me, if not to a panic attack, to a kind of paralysis. And people might be saying, yeah, right, Scott, you know, no, I just do as much as I can to keep up or at least stay close to my wife, Kimberly. She has breathed into us a spirit of supernatural hope. And in so many ways, I would say it was that which opened my mind and my heart, not only to the fact that the Catholic faith is true, but that the Catholic faith is far more beautiful than simply true, far more powerful than just simply beautiful. You know, and I, I think the, the mysteries of faith that we profess in the creed don't just add up to 12 articles. They're like the 12 precious gems on the breastplate of Israel's high priest. These truths are reality. And we have objective reality on our side, no matter who wins in the next election cycle. And so we should not give in to despair. We should not give in to reaction. Again, it will empower our foes. We should give in to the joy of the gospel. The joy of the Lord is our strength in the Old Testament, Nehemiah, in the New Philippians. And if we put God to the test and say, okay, help me to fixate, to stay focused on the truth and the reality and the power and the beauty that inheres in the Eucharist, the real presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's not rhetoric. That's not hyperbole. That's not make-believe. That's not wishful thinking. That is the truth that is above all of these other temporary truths that we call politics. We've been in such a storm for so long, we almost end up believing in puddles more than we believe in the sun that is shining. We just can't see the rays because of the clouds. And it's like, this is sanctified Catholic common sense. This is the only way to live out faith, hope, and charity 
in a way that is, as I said in the beginning, eschatologically safe. If you want to get to heaven, then remember what Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 3.20, your citizenship is in heaven. He uses the technical political term polituma. What he's saying is not that you're just so heavenly minded that you're not going to be earthly good. You know, the Philippians had dual citizenship. So do we. I'm an American, but my commonwealth, my citizenship is in heaven. That should make us fearless. That should make us joyful. And what do you call that? You know, you call that a consistent Catholic. If we're going to be Catholics and pride ourselves on how conservative and orthodox we are, you know, we should line up and read, read Romans 2. That's not the thing that God wants to bless. If we are joyless Catholics, that's like being a married bachelor. That's an oxymoron. We're, we're, we're basically pulling the carpet out from under our own feet. And I'm not doing it all that well, but I'm convinced I'm doing it better than I ever could on my own, better than I could when I was a libertarian, an Austrian economist, and you know, publishing in the Freeman, all of that stuff. When you recognize that we are meant to live as a family, but ultimately the Father sends the Son to give us the Holy Spirit to make us His family, that's the only hope for healing my family. 35 years ago when I became a Catholic. So our first three kids have given us 20 grandkids. The next two are seminarians preparing for the priesthood to be spiritual fathers. Please, please pray for Jeremiah. He's going to be ordained on May 21st, Lord willing. Joe's not far behind. David is still deciding as a 21-year-old who's graduating from Franciscan University of Steubenville. But I mean, God's to blame for whatever good there is in our family. I mean, I go to confession every week, and Kimberly has never suggested I go too frequently. It's this medicine. I need a blood transfusion. I need IV, you know, and, and the more I get it, the freer I am to admit it and to seek even more still. It's the single most liberating force for us as Catholics and the single most powerful force for changing America. And again, this isn't like, oh, holy hyperbole. This is what it means to profess our faith in God, the Father Almighty, and why he sent the Son and why the Holy Spirit can produce a communion of saints out of sinners, not just non-Catholics. I was as anti-Catholic as they come. Just like Saul was such a great apostle because he was such a fierce persecutor. I think, you know, we can really harness all of this despair, the hopelessness, you know, and instead of just reacting in more and more anger and sadness and hopelessness, we can say, let's really say what we believe and let's really live it out. And again, this is this is a sermon, I suppose, but it's also, again, it's just Catholic common sense. And I think the more we put this in the air we breathe, the more we pump this into the water supply, the more people are going to say, oh, it's not just some overzealous convert, even after 35 years, potatoes of what it means to be Catholics living in America in the 21st century. You are listening to a very special Ignite Radio Live. We are rebroadcasting moments from the podcast Crisis Point and Outreach of Crisis Magazine. Listening to Scott Hahn speak about his new book, co-authored with Brandon McGinley, it is right and just. Join us in engaging your families on the journey at ilovemyfamily.us. Well, I think um, I, I invited the wrong Han onto the show, first of all. So, um, Amen. <laughs> I, need to, I need to, you know, remember that next time. It's Kimberly's the one who needs to be on here, not Scott. So, uh, but no, I think we're going to wrap it up there. I'm the warm-up you, act. I've always felt that's that. That's right. Exactly. Way. You're the warm-up. <laughs> you know, hey, that's why you're on first. We just kind of warm everybody up, but then we'll get the real heavy hitters like Kimberly on later. So yeah, that's right. Um, but let's go ahead and wrap it up because we're getting a little long. And, um, and so, first of all, I just want to make sure everybody knows it is right and just. Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion by Scott Hahn and Brandon McGinley. 
and um, it's uh, Emmaus, right? Publishing That's right. It's Ro- Emmaus, Emmaus Road. Yeah, it's the publishing is- arm of the St. Paul Center. I'm here in the studio of the St. Paul Center. So you can go to stpaulcenter.com, stpaulcenter.com. Before you privilege Jeff Bezos, I would encourage you to privilege St. Paul. <laughs> yes, exactly. Trust me, St. Paul Center is your friend. Amazon, not so much. We'll just say that. <laughs> and let me add, too, that um, this season of Lent, we are live streaming the brand new Journey Through Scripture Bible program called Parousia, the Bible and the Mass. And I say this not because I'm just wanting to advertise it. I do want that. But because I'm thinking that the more we cultivate Eucharistic amazement, as Pope St. John Paul II, the more we become amazed at how unamazed we've been up until the pandemic and this political fiasco, we're, we're now back and we're allowed to receive. And boy, that is the single greatest source of the grace that we need not only to become saints, but also to transform the social order. Thank you, Eric, not only for the invitation and the virtual hospitality, but your yes to taking over as editor-in-chief of Crisis. It's always been going going all the way back to the 80s, but I do think the best is yet to come. So may our Lord bless you and the team and all of your efforts. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Once again, we are very grateful for the generosity of Eric Sammons, new editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine, and the reestablishment of their podcast, Crisis Point. Please support them at crisismagazine.com. been listening to Scott Hahn talk about his brand new book. And if you're as inspired as I am and you're eager to do more than listen and be forged with the great ideas contained here, the ideas truly articulating God's heart and mind for his people, we've been fashioned in his image, right? Called to fulfill it. If you're desirous of living that out more fully, Join us in the journey at ilovemyfamily.us. And just a heads up on a subject that has been of interest to all of us, the COVID-19 and vaccines. I just want to direct you personally to a project I began uh, last week, actually, with a number of doctor friends, scholars, and others who were raising some serious questions because of some questionability of establishment media and medical sources. So we're not conspiratorial. We're not seeking to just uh, drink the Kool-Aid, right, uh, of discontent, but we want to seek truth. We want to understand truth, and particularly from those who have credibility, who are, who are experts in the field. Um, it doesn't take uh, hard to search and find the case for getting the vaccines. And by the way, we respect everyone's earnest pursuit of the truth here. So a week ago, a number of us had been accumulating some of this data, again, from credible scholarly doctor sources about the vaccines, and we assembled them in a very tight, organized way and very much welcome everyone's contribution in the interest of truth. If it's not verifiable truth, if it's not reasonable, we take it off this document. So we call it a live community-authored document. And you can find that at gregorianrant.us, gregorianrant.us. That's my personal uh, webpage, if you will, where I share things that are particularly meaningful to me. And uh, no, I'd really welcome you going there and checking that out. You'll find some other meaningful articles on things that matter to me, certainly weaving into our movement here uh, of Image Trinity Mass Impact, but you might find maybe a little more directness from my own personal experience. Again, gregorianrant.us. God bless you until next time. Gosh, what extraordinary times we're living in right now. Looking over the past months and year, do we not all recognize that something extraordinary has been going on? Something that has been challenging and testing us to our very core. 
So this radio program has been running now, it's amazing, for over five years on a weekly basis. You may not know that Ignite Radio Live corresponds to our mission at MassImpact.us. We are supported by no more than 50 people, which is quite incredible. Because over the past seven years, literally hundreds of thousands have been impacted by our radio, our audio, visual, and social media. Thousands have participated in our events, including Ignites, Presents for Christmas, Ablaze, Mission One, Marriage Retreats, The Family Road Trip. Even prior to the George Floyd, we were praying and saying, Lord, what are you asking us to do in these circumstances? And we initiated this thing called OneHeartOneCity.us. What's that? Well, an invitation to break out in public places and simply be the presence of God. To date, we've had over 12 different events with tremendous impact that we've shared over these radio waves. You can experience some of that at OneHeartOneCity.us, the lives that have been impacted. So we've been very blessed to have this story shared through national media, through EWTN, National Catholic Register. Here's the thing. None of what I just shared with you is compensable. It's not a typical business where there's a product. We don't charge money. We trust in God's sustaining grace through the generosity of people like you. So here we go. Right now, I invite you to please partner with us in this mission. Please consider being a monthly partner or making a one-time gift. Go to massimpact.us and click on the donate button. Again, go to massimpact.us and click on donate. Above all, please pray for us in this mission and be assured of our daily fervent prayers for you. Thank you so much. God bless. 